Where dreams become obscure is in their dealing with wishes that are frightening or associated with emotional conflict, wishes that are therefore subject to mental censorship and rendered unconscious. Freud showed that in order to discover the disguised meaning of a dream, it's necessary to explore the dreamer's associations, his or her spontaneous thoughts, in relation to the various elements of the dream, since there are no fixed universal meanings of dream symbols. So that used to give me an autistic nightmare in the past. I used to think that dream interpretation was no more valid than reading the horoscope in the newspaper. Well, have you started the podcast? Yes. Hello, welcome to Private Practice Podcast. I'm James Hall. Hello, welcome to Private Practice Podcast. I'm Daniel P. Brown. Sorry, James, I was listening, but I didn't realise that you were on fire, you know, like uh, presenting. It's That's just like you've woken up out of a dream and you're slightly confused and delirious. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, because you said nothing and obviously just started your recorder. Luckily, I'd started my recorder-ish, sort of, roundabout when you begun. So, this time in the Forest of Terrible Things... Um, we are actually in the dream boat. So I'm guessing there's some kind of lake in the forest. Although I don't really want it to be... Maybe it's an underground river. Like a canal. Just because... Yeah, because the, the, it really needs to be under the canopy. It can't be a big clearing because dreams... They're, they're, okay, so we're going to compare two different types. We are going to... This is, my, this is the language you don't like. I, James Hall, have decided... Mm-hmm that we are going to compare two different types of dreams, simple dreams and complex dreams. Right, cool. And we're going to compare Freud and Jung, although, for once, I'm going to put all the emphasis on Freud. Whoa. But, okay, so, in a... I don't want to say in a nutshell, I want to use... I want to maybe condense or displace the nutshell. So... The nut is gathered by the squirrel who reproduces with another squirrel. Therefore, underneath the flappy foreskin of the squirrel's penis... What? Well, hang on, how does the phrase work in a nutshell? Oh, yeah. So, <laughs> in the testicles of the squirrel, to keep this concise... Freud believed that dreams revealed disguised secrets, whereas Jung believed that the unconscious provided knowledge that has not yet come to be. And therefore, when you have a dream, the knowledge starts to be, as opposed to just being psychic energy repressed. Ah, it's pretty... Well, we're done then, aren't we? 
Anyway, it was thank you to the listener. Uh, this week's episode was brought to you by James Hall. No, I'm the one who's meant to be in denial of dreams because I'm the one who doesn't keep a dream diary. I'm the one who doesn't listen to the dream analysis on my favourite uh, Jungian analysis podcast. Yep. I'm the one who has never really, until recently, until developing an interest in Carl Jung I've never taken any interest in dream analysis Mm -hmm. and even then it's been the final thing really that I've embraced about Mm -hmm. Jung's ideas I've pretty much ignored his thoughts on dreams until I realized that I really admire everything about him in fact just as an aside Mm -hmm. do you know that he had the perfect death Uh, go on so he built himself his right. own kind of grand design on the shore of Lake Zurich. So let's make this all about me. I love being by the water. I love architecture. I would love to build my own house. It would have to be by the water for me to feel it was worthwhile actually building a house. And so Carl Jung had this house that he had designed and built by the water. And I think he built a lot of himself by hand, didn't he? I think so, yeah. I believe so. I mean, the cartoon I I was reading about him seemed to indicate that, but it had very few words in it, so I'm not sure. And he opened a bottle of very uh, special vintage wine Uh and enjoyed that wine one evening and then the next day just died peacefully. So the house bit, what's what's that got to do with that? He was in the house that he had built. So he died peacefully in the house that he had built, having drunk the wine that he'd been saving for a special occasion. Or Yeah. And I think also he, there was something quite special about the house and his unconscious mind. Because obviously these people we speak of, these, these Carls and these Freuds and this lot, they... They all were in some kind of analysis themselves for a long, long time. You know, they went through probably two or three analysts, most of them. Some of them just one. And uh, they sort of marked periods of their life as being, you know, somewhat enlightened or fulfilled. Or So, you know, even these super brainy, super academic, you know, uh, trailblazers, um, word maker-upperers. The you know the the godfathers of psychoanalysis and psychology and therapy, even they were pretty fucked up, weren't they? Well, you know, I don't consider mental health to be an illness that you get fixed from. So, therefore, because I assume everyone, like if if you're going to if you're going to call someone in therapy a mental health patient, then I would therefore call every human being a mental health patient, and you can't therefore say analysts are the only people who are not human. Yeah, I didn't ask that. I was just saying they had their own issues, didn't they, James? By means of being human. Yeah. Anyway, what next well, do you want to say, James? I've got lots to say, but what do you want to say? Because I don't think you like the way I've started this episode. Well, you didn't tell me you'd started the episode. That was unnerving. Okay. Yeah. So last week we started the episode by saying this week we're on the dream boat and we're going to talk about dreams and then we didn't. If the listener hasn't picked up on it, this week we are on the dream boat and we are talking about dreams. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. That wasn't what was annoying me, James. What was annoying? Well, me? you could have talked about Freud or Jung and their problems. You love problems because problems enable you to have a solution, and the solution is therapy. And that's what we're here to talk about. And I say something like, blah, 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 blah. Even these great men had their own fucked upness, and you said, yes, because they're human. But what, I don't know specifically what problems you wanted me to talk about. Whatever you knew about Freud or Jung. Well, their relationship with each other. One of them, I think Freud is the extrovert, Jung is the introvert, and they clashed. They're a bit like a sort of husband and wife, whereby opposites attract. Their opposite personalities attracted them to each other. And then they, I think Freud was writing off Jung as a kind of egomaniac, power-hungry, deluded, crazy maniac (laughs) towards the end of his career. Uh Yeah, and I think they actually stupidly there's something like they went on some kind of like reading and lecturing tour if I remember right and they gave each other analysis on the way over there on the boat which probably took a couple of months is my guess (laughs) and they started getting pissed off with each other because you know Freud didn't like what Jung was saying about his thoughts and Freud didn't also want to give any background to the things that were coming out in free association. Oh, yeah. Freud was quite guarded. He thought that mm. to, to actually be honest and open in a Carl Rogers-type relationship would lose him some of his intellectual clout or something. Like he would be somehow diminished by the sort of like the economics of scarcity meant that he needed to not put all of himself out there in the world. Yeah, I think partially that, but also I think he was quite threatened by this younger man, Carl Jung, and I think also maybe it was more like a father-son relationship, and Freud saw himself as the, you know, the dad, and he knew what he was talking about. But, I mean, you know, I'm just guessing here. So, you know, Freud had his own insecurities. Carl Jung not only had a wife, but had a mistress for, I think, 30 years. Um at least 30 years. Uh, he but also... they both knew each, about each other. The yeah, apparently so. But yeah, but you know, we've been talking about problems and we're talking about these great men. It might be good to point out that they're not that great. They are just men. Yes. Yeah. Good. Okay. Good. Sorry, I'm just slightly... I, I said something... I said Freud didn't want to impart too much of himself along the lines of economic scarcity. Like, for example, if there's too much on the market, then the value goes down. That doesn't make sense. Freud felt like his authority would be diminished if he revealed too many of his flaws. That's what I was trying to say. Something like that, yeah. Which is obviously a stupid... According to the Carl Rogers school of analysis that would be no it would be a perfectly understandable emotional state to be in James and um, perhaps he wouldn't need to feel like that because actually his authority was well established and actually fighting against exposing himself and his emotional rawness might actually have made him more approachable understandable and relatable character Keep talking for a while. (laughs) Yeah. So uh, James and I have done a little bit of reading around these two characters, but we've done different reading. James has been very academic in his reading. I, like I said, am reading the cartoon versions of Jung and Freud and Melanie Klein, which I'm finding absolutely enlightening, and the pictures are fantastic. So, yeah, so today, though, we are actually on James's dreamboat, and I think one of the things that also always throws me is James always 
assumes that the listener will remember where we are and where we were. So you're talking about the dark forest and we're talking about, what's your phrase for the dark forest? The forest of terrible things. The forest of terrible things. And we're talking about the unconscious mind. So it's everyone's forest of terrible things. It is not a specific forest of terrible things. It is, in essence, the shared forest of terrible things that we all have privately. Well, that's interesting because it is the shared forest of terrible things in the sense of the collective unconscious, whereby many of the plants, many of the trees will have roots that connect to the mycelial network of all humankind. Uh -huh. But at the same time, you'll be able to pluck fruits that are individual to that particular character and are not necessarily shared amongst all people. And those are the things in the recesses, underneath the leaves, lurking, scary, hiding in the shadows. And the only way to draw them out is through the proceeds processes of analysis or at least that's a very good way to draw them out is the uh, is the is the general attitude that we have here well uh, yeah there's lots of different forms of analysis and so i was trying to be vague only way it's not the only way well we've looked at sort of the other ways like diarrhea and freudian slips and no 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 behavior, no, patterns no, of behavior. no 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 because you're talking about how does the listener explore their forest of terrible things and actually that isn't the only way you know you can explore the forest of terrible things by creative writing for yourself or by but that's where other people can look at what you've written and think hang on a minute I smell a rat whereas if you write something you're not going to read it back analytically like an analyst would in the therapy room no, no. Let me say that again. If you're a creative writer, you write something and someone reads it, watches it, however they consume it, they not only take in the story, but they also think, I think that writer was a bit... And then they explain a characteristic or something. You say, I think I can read between the lines of this novel. And as an amateur therapist, I can say that this writer has issues with women because it's evident in the writing. The Freudian slips, so to speak are written into the narrative because I, want, I need a specific example. Okay, so I have a problem with maternal figures or something. Like I have a problem taking authority from women due to something that happened in my childhood. And so I'm writing a book and I'm writing about the relationship of a couple or something. And I put all my prejudice into that book. I don't know that I have any prejudice. So it's, there's no sitting down thinking, right, women, I'm going to teach you a lesson. It's more that I'm writing a story. I think this is fairly clear. I'm, I'm, I'm desperately trying to make this as simple as possible. As if, you know what I mean? I'm trying to write a story about whatever two people unable to... What, what is a story? Two, two, one person unable to love the other person because they're unable to give themselves totally to another person. That's what I think my story is about. But I'm furiously writing, women are awful, I hate my mother, uh, women have always treated me badly, women need to be taught a lesson, I'm going to teach those women. That's what I'm actually writing from the unconscious without realising that that's my unconscious drive. I then get this book published and someone buys it and they read it and they're thinking, okay, this book is supposed to be about intimacy issues, but I think 
this is all I'm reading between the lines is the author hates women. Mm-hmm. So that is what you said about creative writing as a way of getting some an idea out of the unconscious into the world. But I'm, as the author, I'm not reading back thinking, gosh, I really hate women and it's coming through in this book I've written. Golly, I'm really shocked reading back my... I mean, that might happen. Well, yeah, that, that, I, I think, I, I mean, you're not wrong, but I'm saying that the, on, not, the only way... You said that the, the way to explore your unconscious mind is in therapy. And I'm yes, saying... and I was too, I've, I've, put a, I've built a fence around that as if on the other side of therapy there is no way of exploring your unconscious yeah. mind. Wrong. Yeah. There are as many ways to explore the unconscious mind as the number the listener has in their head at the moment. As in, it doesn't matter, infinite, whatever, pick a number. Uh-huh. And given that we are talking to the listener, they will have a number in their head and it won't necessarily be a Roman numeral it might just be an, an impression of big or small so whatever that is that is what they will be thinking right now uh-huh. it doesn't matter what words I use they will have their impression of how many ways there are to get ideas out of the unconscious and I don't need to draw a line around the therapist room and say nothing outside of that is going to work I did and I was wrong but you then said what about creative writing? Mm-hmm. Does the creative writer get what an analyst might get? Analysis is the relationship between two people, whereas the creative writer is typing and publishing, and there isn't a relationship between two people there. Uh, see, I think you're wrong there. And also, I think you, writing for publication is very different from creative writing. It's very different from choosing to explore your unconscious mind through word on paper. So this is an active, I want to explore my unconscious mind, yeah, so I'm yeah. going to write things down. As is, as is therapy in, in many, many cases. If someone listened to what we were talking about, and went, hmm, actually, maybe I should explore my unconscious mind. They wouldn't have to just go to a sometimes expensive therapist. They could use automatic writing rather than okay. perhaps creative writing, or they could allow themselves to write without prejudice or judgment and just see what happens and then look at it back like you might paint and say what mood am I in today rather than say what mood am I in today and then try and paint that you might also meditate in different ways and I know that sorry my tummy's a bit funny at the moment (laughs) I think there's some displaced diarrhea yes something's definitely happening and it's clearing up I think yeah I'm just saying that there's many ways that you can engage with to purposefully try and explore your unconscious mind and no it wouldn't be as thorough and perhaps as useful as um, you know a course of therapy but there are other ways I got the wrong end of the stick so I'm sat on the bow of the dream boat in the canal under the canopy of the forest of terrible things and I'm trying to fish out from the water and Carl Jung is the imagery of fish quite a lot in reference to stuff like this. I'm trying to fish out of the water some ideas about the unconscious mind and how to find things that are repressed but I'm holding on to the hook end of the fishing rod. Oh dear. So I literally got the wrong end of the stick. I could probably shoehorn here into this upper paddle without a creek yeah, yeah. Um, and that would make quite a splash. <laughs> so, okay, right. At least we're now on the same page of I mean, the creative yeah. writing. Good. 
That'll do for metaphors. That'll do. Um, so you're talking about trying to explore your unconscious mind, and all, and that's those are that's an example that people see all the time. Like everyone's an amateur detective. Everyone is an amateur psychic detective i would say and therefore when you're chatting to <laughs> your good. when you're chatting to your neighbor on the front step and they are projecting their own irritations onto the other neighbor that you're gossiping about or something like that uh-huh. you might as an amateur psychic sleuth be thinking mm-hmm. you might be <laughs> taking those little mental notes yes. going back inside to your uh to the secret room that is behind uh, a fake panel of your library that doesn't have real books in it. It's actually a door. And you go in there and you've got this sort of like web of post-it notes and photos and bits of string on the yes, wall yes. mapping the unconscious mind of your neighbour. Sandra. And you, Sandra. And you've mm. just got a new little bit of information. She has just projected an intolerable idea about something or other and you map that onto your amateur impression of her unconscious mind yes yes well we do don't we we wonder what's getting people's goat today and we try and work it out and think about what they really mean when they say something um so yeah we do Um, how successful we are at that who knows well that's the thing so this is what i have just been reading in uh carl rogers on becoming a person to do with the difference between the scientific method and the therapeutic method. And whereas it seems like they are very different and there are some things that are quite possibly irreconcilable, uh, integration is not entirely possible in that relationship because science requires an outside perspective to create a hypothesis, test it, try and disprove it, gather data, look at it objectively from the third-person perspective and draw conclusions that can then be tested by other people and so on. And then you have some kind of law of physics that is essentially true for everyone who finds it to be true at any time or place. And therapy is a one-on-one subjective, I think you want to slay your father and penetrate your mother. There's no scientific method in coming to that conclusion. It's a hypothesis, a subjective hypothesis that cannot be disproven cannot be objectively tested in any way so they seem like they're irreconcilable however Carl Rogers talks about the subjectivity in science the fact that every scientist is a person who comes at every problem with subjectivity decides upon what they want to study and what they want to the the hypothesis they come up with comes from a subjective point of view I think this and I want to find out if it's true I will therefore test it And then, so for example, you come up with a scientific law like Newton's law of gravity. The apple will fall from the tree. And according to various calculations, we can assume that there is a gravitational pull in the core of the Earth that is equal in all places around the world. And that can be tested. But everyone who drops an apple and watches it fall to the ground essentially has to be prepared to believe the science from their own subjective point of view and if they don't believe it if they think that there are evil spirits in the core of the earth that are trying to suck things into their belly they will be as inclined to believe that as to believe newton's law of of gravity and so the people who believe in newton's law of gravity are those people who have 
subjectively decided that they think science is more rational than gods and monsters. And there's a lot of trust involved in that, isn't it, of others. There's a lot of trust of... And, and I think it's starting to waver in this day and age, uh, trust in science. Because, you know, you say, oh, well, we've used the scientific method. We have double-blind, placebo-controlled, peer-reviewed articles on this medication. It is a fact that it works for cancer. And we trust that, don't we? So it's not just the belief that science has got a system that works, but it is trusting the scientists as well. So whereas it seems like the scientific method is highly rational and objective and the therapeutic method is highly irrational and subjective, the Oedipus complex being a perfect example, as in Freud sitting there thinking, I think you want to slay your father and penetrate your mother, that seems irrational. Whereas on the other side, Newton saying, aha, the apple has fallen from the tree. I have done these calculations. I have tested them. Um, we can test them all around the world. Every apple falls from every tree down to the ground. Therefore, that can conclude that my sensible rational science is worthy of being written into scientific law that can be observed by everyone in the world universally and correctly because it is proper science. They seem different, but I was saying that Newton subjectively viewed the world according to his own value system, and he thought it was important to work out what really pulls the apple down to the ground, and he came up with subjectively what he thought it was, and he tested that to see if it was. Then it's only from that point that the testing and all the scientific method is essentially quite objective. But then at the end of it, more subjectivity comes in when the idea is presented to the wider world and people subjectively choose whether to accept it and believe it because I haven't tested it. I haven't got a clue if there's gravity in the middle of the earth or if there are evil spirits sucking the apples down to the ground because they're trying to pull them away from me. I haven't got a clue which of those is correct. I can only believe the science because it seems like everyone else believes it. It's a totally subjective view that I have that the science is correct because I'm not the one who's tested it. Hmm, okay. And therapy? Therapy is in that situation where Freud is behind the couch saying, I think you want to slay your father and penetrate your mother you're lying on the couch and you think either well actually that does make sense even though it sounds ridiculous I now recognize where my problem with male authority figures comes from because of something in childhood I mean can you give an example of where a therapist delivers something that sounds like crazy witchcraft but the person for whom he's talking or she is talking thinks this isn't crazy witchcraft because whilst it might seem abstract to someone else what you have just said represents exactly something that makes sense to my mm -mm. Well, story. Well I guess that with science we are often passive recipients of the end product and in therapy we are the scientist working with a specialist scientist to find out through experiments of thought and language our own truth. That's the way that I'd see it. That's the way I'd see the comparison. It's a different relationship, but there's still method and experiment. And 
individual meaning. That's the thread. So there is method in analysis which makes it different to the amateur psychic sleuth building up post-it notes of information about Sandra from number 34. Mm -hmm. Depending on how naturally talented that amateur psychic sleuth is or how lucky they are, it's not a methodical approach to examining the psyche of Sandra. Yeah, true. There we go. Yeah. And also with the, the kind of therapies we're talking about, there's lots of research that goes into trying to find at least the um, success rate or the efficacy of a certain form of therapy. It's not that there's no science to support its value. It's just there's not really any science to support its... Or there's very little. There's a small amount of science to support why it might work. There's lots of qualitative research, but it's kind of seen as a soft science when you're talking about talking about but when you've got the empirical quantitative facts and figures number data that seems to prove things and I think again what general society doesn't realize is that things are uh, on the whole of their time it's why physicists hold themselves so highly because they're trying to work with un disputed facts you know same with chemistry I guess but like other things change you know things change over time so you know for a long long time um, we thought that the earth and the sun had a different relationship to how they have and uh, and we didn't know what was beyond the stars and we didn't know so things change as we learn more so the science that was once factually accurate 300 years ago in as much as a fact can be accurate, is now no longer factually accurate. But it was the building block to get to the accurate facts we have right now. And therapy is slightly different to that. Although we learn about what is working, we haven't really learned much more about why it works in terms of hard science. This gives me a chance for finally for once to criticise my guru. Oh gosh. So instead of are you sure you're ready for this, Jane? I'm perfectly happy to do this. So instead of directing the listener towards Sam Harris's meditation app and talking about how he has been saying something fascinating about consciousness or whatever, he gave a TED talk about how, and has written a book about how science can answer moral questions. And I don't agree. That, that, they, that science can answer more questions. He says that he, he says you can derive an ought from an is. So he can say he says things like, for example, we know that suffering is real. It's a fact that pain is well, something along these lines. Yeah, yeah. We can pain. see it in the brain. Yeah, we can objectively say that pain is bad, and therefore we can objectively say that anyone who inflicts pain should not do that and we can use science to basically write the laws of ethics in some situations like that. But I don't agree that that's true. I think the whole thing is subjective. I think the science is subjective. I think the pain is subjective. I think the whole thing is subjective. And he's too rational and logical and conclusive in most of his opinions about that kind of stuff. Uh -huh. Okay, okay, okay. So... The dream boat. Yeah, we need to get back on the dream boat because I feel like 
I have kind of shunted dreams to the end of this mini series because it's the thing that I feel least equipped to talk about and the thing that I've always avoided. avoided. Yeah. So yes, I've been avoiding dreams, but at least one thing I can do is well, I could, we can start with I have a wonderful example of a woman with a giant pair of testicles on her head. Mm-hmm. So this was a... Yeah, you tell this story. Go, go, go. <laughs> this was, a, a, I think, a client of Freud. And she came in one day and said, I had a funny dream last night. I was wearing a hat and it was lopsided and everyone was looking at me. I was very self-conscious about my lopsided hat and people were judging me because my hat was wrong in some way and later on in therapy eventually Freud managed to acquire the little nugget of information that to him solved that dream and that was that her husband had asymmetrical testicles and we can probably assume that she had never seen any other testicles because this was back in the day what she wouldn't have been on tinder there was no porn hub in those days yeah so she had not seen Certainly she had not seen a wealth of testicles and she thought that they should be symmetrical and that her husband had a problem with one being bigger than the other. How shameful. And that manifested itself in a dream of a lopsided hat. So I I started by saying that that we were going to look at two different types of dreams, simple dreams and complex dreams. That's probably, obviously there's no dividing line and nothing fits neatly into each category, but that's closer towards a complex dream oh, because... do you think? oh i thought that was quite a simple like you know you know anyone can understand that as an analysis can't they she's ashamed of something lopsided her husband has lopsided testicles well when, when you say it like that it sounds obvious but then every explanation makes things sound obvious she didn't have a clue what it's it was about point, and James. freud didn't have a clue what the dream was about for however long it took for her to come out with the fact that her husband because freud when she said I've been dreaming of a floppy hat that's asymmetrical. Freud didn't say, aha, your husband has asymmetrical testicles. I have solved this like the super psychic sleuth that I am. That's not what happened. Freud sat there thinking, well, I don't know what your stupid lopsided hat means. You're going to have to give me some more information. And she didn't for a long time. Realistically, he would have probably said something like, how very interesting. Just so you know, he wouldn't have said, I don't care about your stupid lopsided hat. Yeah, okay. <laughs> but that, sorry, that was his internal voice that I was... Oh, right, right, right. Yeah, yeah, that yeah. I was mocking. Who is this fool who cares about a hat? Wonder what's for dinner. Mm, should I cheat on my wife? <laughs> <laughs> Again. Yeah, something like that. No, so he didn't have the information about the testicles and he didn't guess... So that so it was a complex dream. Well, okay, so let, let me make this simple and let me give an example of a simple dream. You dream of maybe a gushing river or to make it even more simple, you dream that you're wetting yourself and then you wake up and you feel like you need to go to the toilet. Or um, a child... I, I'm so hesitant of using absolute language on this podcast because everything I say with absolute language is going to be interpreted as wrong so and that's absolute and that's probably not true some people will interpret it as being correct Uh but I'm going to say something absolute and I don't care how it's interpreted children have fact children have simple dreams such as a child goes to a birthday party and in the night they dream of wanting cake and they see some cake and they want it or something like that. 
Yeah, that's a nice, simple dream, isn't it? And if that child goes into analysis and say, lies on the couch with Freud sat behind him and says, I dreamt last night that I wanted cake. And Freud says, oh, that's interesting. What did you do during the day that might have prompted this dream? I went to a birthday party and there was cake. Freud, and, and Freud thinks, aha, I see. I think we can conclude where that dream came from. It came from the birthday party. You have an, what was it, a, 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 an unfulfilled wish. Maybe you didn't have enough cake at the birthday party and you wanted more. And so you dreamt about wanting more cake. That's that mystery solved case closed. That's not a complex dream. Whereas the testicle hat is slightly more complex because Freud didn't know that the hat represented testicles and it's not obvious that a hat represents testicles. There are lots of cliches that are written into many of these books. So for example, a vagina is often a small box or a sailing vessel or a purse. Yeah. Whereas a penis is anything that is very familiarly phallic like the salt and pepper grinders that we have on the table at the moment a sausage a large skyscraper a cigar yeah so a pen a toilet roll holder <laughs> the handle of a brush mm. so if any of those symbols crop up in a dream you're probably a homosexual <laughs> <laughs> it's likely that it's they, most likely they stand in the place of a of a reproductive organ maybe um yeah so so you got your complex dreams you got your simple dreams we're on our dream boat we're exploring the sea of the unconscious the river the canal the underground waterway of the unconscious mind and dreams are our little window into the unconscious journey i'm going to reread what i started the episode with because you weren't aware that the episode had started and who knows maybe the listener was still taking stuff out of the fridge thinking about how they were going to cook it where dreams become more obscure than the child thinking about the cake uh-huh is in their dealing with wishes that are frightening or associated with emotional conflict such as I love my husband, but I find his asymmetrical testicles repellent. Mm -hmm. But I can't say that in polite society because it's 1903. Mm -hmm. I can't just knock on the door of number 34 across the street and say, have you got a minute? I want to talk about my husband's asymmetrical testicles because this is yeah. a bee in my bonnet at the moment and I need to get it off my chest. Yeah, Lady Susanna Schmidt-Klein won't, won't have it. So they become more obscure and they're dealing with wishes that are frightening or associated with emotional conflict. Wishes that are therefore subject to mental censorship and rendered unconscious. So that woman has decided that it would be so embarrassing to bring up the asymmetry of her husband's testicles that she simply cannot do that in polite society. Her superego has shut that down and repressed the image into the unconscious but as we talked about in the first episode psychic energy does not disappear just like physical energy does not disappear so if something is hot and you put it down that heat transfers onto something else the, the table that you put it onto so if you have a hot idea my husband's testicles are asymmetrical and you repress that into the back of your unconscious that psychic heat as a metaphor so that you can follow this is going to be displaced onto something else such as an image of a floppy hat yeah it needs to sort of rise to the surface again 
and it comes through in a dream. So therefore, in the dream, you don't actually have a sensible discussion of, gosh, I really need to work out whether my husband's testicles are freak testicles, unlike all the other testicles in the world that are perfectly symmetrical. Instead of that, you just have a symbolic dream of wearing a floppy hat and everyone's judging you, thinking that you are inappropriate and you should sort your hat out, which reveals the emotion or the feeling that she has that her husband is inappropriate and he should sort his testicles out so that they're symmetrical. Yeah. So dreams are a way of exploring strong, repressed feelings and ideas and worries and concerns and as well as wishes and desires. And Freud thought that the best way to work out a meaning of a dream was not for him to sit there going, hmm, the floppy hat, what does that represent? Floppy hat, what's floppy? Your husband's testicles, perhaps. <coughs> Which is what yes. didn't happen. No. He thought that random connect there's no such thing as a random connection you say words and they're not random because the reason you said them is a is a fact of the psyche word associations i don't quite know what you're getting out here it's something that you know it's something that you we have done before on this podcast in the in the the initial series one or two or something um blue sea boat sky yeah. What what what's that? Well, it's word association. That's. Have I forgotten something? I don't know. I thought there was another word for it. You mean oh, <laughs> uh, um, <laughs> oh dear, James. How can I not remember this? Freud thought that the best way to gather evidence of what the dream meant to the per- to the dreamer is through word association. So in other words, he thought there was no such thing as a random connection. So if the woman sat on the couch says, I had a funny dream about having a floppy hat and everyone was judging me because my hat was inappropriate. Freud says, how do you feel about the hat and inappropriate um what what do you think the hat represents i don't know what's the first word that comes into your head spinach and so you go from that and i i mean i the spinach was the first word that i james hall on sunday the 24th of may at 2208 came up with yeah because you're hungry whereas the woman in context would have said whatever word was the first thing that she came up with. Obviously cupboard. Uh, a cupboard. And, well, no, sort of... Yes, hidden, cupboard. Put it away. Okay. It. okay. Lock the door. So she says cupboard, and Freud has the first piece of evidence, and he believes that every word that that woman says is useful evidence. None of them are just random coincidences. that, And you don't have to sift out the irrelevant words and try and focus on the ones that are actual clues. He thinks that every word that someone comes... Free association. Free association. Finally, we've got that. Yes. God God blast. So he thinks that every word that comes out of free association is a valid clue. And you don't have to sit there going, like, swipe left, swipe right. You don't have to sit there as a therapist going, no, not sure about that one. No, not that one. Yeah, that one is maybe a clue. Okay, next. No, that's 
So that sounds random. That's, random. A, hot, that's a hot one. We'll yeah. take that one. No, you don't have to do that. Did thought... you just say hairy? <laughs> <laughs> Did you just say silk-lined purse? <laughs> Did you just say a sausage? <laughs> sausage in a silk-lined purse. Sausage in a silk-lined purse. Mm, what could that possibly mean? Um, yeah, anyway. Obviously, we just... Now... What what is it that you most what 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 would you most find interesting about this idea that dreams are a window into our unconscious mind? Do you want me to answer that question now, or do you want me to go through the list of eight Freudian ideas from his famous dreams book that I've made a note of? Do you know what Should James just... in at number eight? <laughs> Okay, so what was your question? Because I do want to answer it. Why do I think it's interesting? Yeah, what most interests you about dreams being a window into the unconscious mind? That is the question that we will answer. Yes, we will. So, in Freud's top list of... This time he's got eight instead of five. This could take us all night. (laughs) Uh, Freud wrote this incredible book, I think called On the Interpretation of Dreams. God knows what it is in Austrian or German or Hungarian or whatever he was writing in at the time. Um, I'm guessing German. Yeah? Well, yeah, because they speak German in Vienna. That's interpretation. I couldn't even pretend to know it. Or at least the dialect of German. Yes. Yeah, in at number eight. No, wish... no, I get to oh, say that bit. You just say number eight. Okay. In at number eight, wish fulfillment. Ah, oh, yes. This is the one that everyone knows, isn't it, really? So that can be both simple and complex dreams. But for example, with the child who wished he'd had a bigger slice of cake, he then has a dream about having a bigger slice of cake. And that represents his wish that he had had the biggest slice of cake at the party. Yeah, but for the more complex end, and probably for the adults who might be listening rather than the kid who wants more cake. For the adult version. For the adult version. Really, what you're talking about there is a repressed desire that is being explored in the dream. So you might have quite a raunchy dream. And in the raunchy dream, you might, I don't know... um, you know, it might involve leather and whips or, or something, you know. But that's quite literal. For... Yes, but it's about something repressed that you don't feel in your conscious mind you're able to explore. But maybe it would be, it would involve snakes or something rather than leather and whips because leather and whips is literally what you use for kinky sex in the bedroom. Whereas what could represent yes, the but, leather and the whips? But when it's a wish, when it's wish fulfillment that is what we're talking about you yeah. are actually going through an experience in your unconscious mind that you're seeing in your dream it's not it's not well it can be but it's much easier to understand and regularly happens that you experience something in your dream like you murder someone that you don't like an actual person you don't like but i don't i think freud was talking about any dream so even the most obscure and censored idea in the unconscious that comes out as some crazy seeming metaphor in the dream so the 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 person wants to have kinky sex they're not going to dream about literal whips and leather they're going to dream about a snake that is I don't know, pushing a boulder off a cliff. And somehow the snake represents the penis, the boulder represents pain, the cliff represents something terrible that you might fall off of. 
Um, yeah, this... if you want to complicate it for the listener, but if we're talking about, like, I mean, your explanation was a child dreams about cake and he wants cake. Yeah, well, that was the simple one. And yeah. so for the complex one, that's why I'm trying to complicate it. Yeah, but it's so complicated that that doesn't, that doesn't that's, make that's, that much sense. Yeah, you but know? That's, that's what most dreams are. We can't whitewash over the majority of dreams and say that they're all like children wishing yeah, that they had a big piece of cake. But you're doing unusual, though. I don't actually think that's true. I don't think most dreams are this. Oh, yes, I looked into the eye of a needle and through it I saw a scrubbing brush and the scrubbing brush was called um, Samantha. And Samantha... But that is what most dreams are like. It's not. But you were joking the other week about you about feeling sorry for people who have boring dreams. Yes, but but they're not they're not so obscure and abstract. My dreams that that you, there's no story. There's, they're not so obscure. You know what did you say? A snake pushing a boulder off a mountain. I'm sorry. No. You're being oppressively defensive of your boring dreams right now. <laughs> I wouldn't say oppressively. I would say vehemently. Well. Wish fulfillment can come through as simply as the little boy who wishes he had the biggest piece of cake at the party, Mm -hmm. right the way through to the person who wants kinky sex and dreams of a snake pushing a boulder off a cliff edge into a yellow sea that has somehow parted and out of the middle of that parting has come a squirrel's tail. And a purse. (laughs) In at number seven. Psychic censorship which is why dreams are confusing, just to repeat what I said moments ago. Yeah, but of the discredited Freud, yes. Okay, so the psychic censorship is that the person who wants the kinky sex, the the idea of whips and leather are intolerable because what would mummy and daddy say to that? So they can't even dream about using whips and leather because that would be a literal voice in their head saying I want it, I want it, whip me, slap me. So they dream about the weird snake and the and the tail coming out of the yellow sea because they have essentially censored the thing that is intolerable to them. So it's like Voldemort, you cannot speak his name. So therefore everything in the dream is a euphemism or a metaphor for the thing that cannot be spoken. So you cannot yeah, have enough, leather and whips enough. in the dream. Fair enough. Okay, do you want to move on? Mm. I guess so. Number six. (laughs) This is slightly confusing because I'm going through them one to eight. So in at number six, number three, (laughs) Um, association. So this is similar to free association with the words. I've written down the example pens, pence, penis. That one is not a very good one because a pen is phallic and looks like a penis. So maybe peas, pence, penis. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So let's try and do some on the spot. Sp- I'll start with the first word that came into my mind a moment ago, spinach. Um, salty. Spunk. Oh, brilliant. We got that one. Okay. <laughs> How about this one? Giraffe. Myself. You know, free association needs to be quick. No, I thought you would... Give me... Give me in Gira- a I'm six. tall, so the thing I think about when you say giraffe, I think of myself. Okay, well, yep, tall. Good, we got there. Okay, giraffe, myself, tall. Let's, should we do one more? Strawberry? Um, rude. Socks. Brilliant. So the free association helps to get at what 
might be because it's very difficult to successfully censor something just look at the societal examples of that like you cannot have sex in society so porn is illegal no sex on tv the government do all they can to censor sex but then suddenly someone accidentally says that um oh my penis doesn't work sorry my pen doesn't work you can't actually do it because it slips out all the time those flies are occasionally left open by accident so it's difficult to censor your own internal thoughts because you are the person censoring and you are also the person who wants that wish to be fulfilled. So as much as you try and censor, the idea is hot in the unconscious and the unconscious is constantly trying to push it back out again. So you can try and furiously zip up your flies, but the throbbing, swelling erection inside is busting its way back out again. Okay, in at number five. <laughs> Childhood memories. Uh-huh. So we've talked a lot about this in this little mini-series about the unconscious and in our trauma episode about things in childhood that are repressed and do not go away and can be drivers of behaviour in adulthood until they are integrated into consciousness and understood and managed by the integrated self who has become uh, the individual, the person that they essentially create, the created sense of self. Julian Beghini's created sense of self from our self episode, uh-huh, uh-huh. which I th- which I called ego. I think I added an unnecessarily layer of confusion in that episode between self and ego, which are two different things. Ego, id, ego, and superego. Id is in- entirely unconscious. Mm-hmm. The superego is... It's like the voice in your head. Yeah, but is that conscious? Not. Yeah, but not always... Well, it's, it's interesting. You might not recognise it and be aware of it, and it might almost be the whisper in the ear of the voice in your head, I think, rather than your more general internal monologue. But the ego is entirely conscious... Uh, yeah, I, I think probably, most, and, mostly. And in a dynamic relationship with the unconscious, whereas the self is the integration of consciousness and unconscious. So the ego is not the self. So I may have unnecessarily confused that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Much like using subconscious and unconscious Yeah, but you've also got to remember that there's, you know, and, and we said we want to do an episode on language, there's the idea that, Although Freud said it like this, and many psychoanalysts from the Freudian school will be you know, very strongly say that these are things that exist and this is how they are defined. That's not what I believe. You know, it's one way, you know, like the tarot cards is one way of predicting what might happen or, or, or creating a pathway or giving you a map for your life. So is psychotherapy. It's another perhaps more robust way of giving you a map and an understanding of how to conceptualise your mind. It's not the only way. Well, every individual has their own set of values which determine how they perceive the world. There are infinite perceptions, but that doesn't mean that all perceptions are good perceptions. There is a hierarchy of values for all of those perceptions. So, for example, I could watch the apple falling from the tree and hitting the ground, and I could say, 
well, on the one hand, it could be Newton's theory of gravity, but on the other hand, it could be evil spirits in the core of the earth who just want to pull all the fruit away from us. And those two interpretations are equally valid. Eeny, meeny, miny, mo. I'm going to pick the evil spirits. That's not how humans function. We have a series of values. So, for example, I consider myself a wonderful, excellent, clever, just fantastic person. And if I believe that there are spirits in the core of the earth, I'm going to be ridiculed in London social circles as being someone who is gullible, stupid and primitive. So it is in my value interest to believe the Newtonian law of physics because that will carry cultural currency for me, James Hall, um, if everyone I know is reassured that I value Newton's science over the belief that there are evil spirits in the middle of the earth who pull the fruit away from us. Hmm. So whilst those are both two subjective interpretations, the, the law of gravity or evil spirits in the centre of the earth, I value one over the other because I have needs and goals and I perceive the world in terms of what I'm trying to achieve in my life. And I don't want to just piss off everyone by making them think that I'm just some gullible... I mean, sometimes I do. Like, I'm not... The, 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 we're going off on a totally different subject here, but I yes, you are. I'm very much not a kind of sheep following the flock. I very much do not fully go with the herd. I do not go with the flow, and I don't mean the chits and mickley flow. I mean the the cliche of going with the flow, doing what, copying what other people do around you. I, from my childhood, at the age of seven, when I was taken to live in Mauritius for a year. Up until that point, I'd had a totally normal, from my part of the world, childhood, whereby I had friends on my street. We played in each other's gardens. That's not a euphemism for a purse of sex. Uh, we played in each other's gardens. We, played, we rode our bikes up and down the street. We all went to the same school together. We knew the neighbours. The parents had barbecues together. Everything was normal. I had a sort of like a community and... As a child, I had values of, you know, I don't want the neighbours to think I'm a bad child, so I won't steal when I'm in their house. So everything was all normal. You know, I want the children to like me, so I will play fair. I won't just hit them and take their bike because it's nicer than my bike. I will play fair. So I had these normal values of a normal child growing up in a normal community, as it was in my neck of the woods. But then I was taken out of that, and I was put in Mauritius, and I had to suddenly live on a beach with no friends and I could just swim in the sea and play with starfish and that was a totally different life and then I came out of that and we moved to another house on the side of a volcano where I went to school with children that I suddenly had to get on with and half of it was in English half of it was in French so all the way I'm only eight years old at this point I then come back to the UK and I live in my grandma's flat in Brighton whilst my parents had no money and no job and no house I then moved to another part of the UK and go to another school so I was jumping around from all of these things so that childhood upbringing means that I haven't spent 18 years of my life in a sort of like a community where I know everyone and they know me and they know what to expect from me and I know how to behave in relationship to them, I jump from one situation to the other. So as far as I'm concerned, I am best set up to be confident 
in myself and my individuality. I don't feel like I need to copy the herd. If anything, I sometimes go way too far and I think I've alienated myself from everyone at this party. I should probably be a bit more normal. In at number four. Thousands of words condensed into symbolism. So, a copper pot might represent... So actually, that whole story that I, I've just used... This is perfect. I've just used lots of words. Mm, you to, have. To yeah. talk about my childhood. And all of that could have been in... Give me one image from Mauritius. The starfish. Exactly. Each one of those five tentacles of the starfish could represent a different aspect of my personality that I'm happy... Wait, five? You've got five aspects to your personality. <laughs> the... the one-legged starfish, <laughs> One-legged well, starfish. Okay, mm, the sea cucumber. That looks... That's more like it. <laughs> or even a pile of seaweed. Slimy. Uh, well, no, the sea cucumber is a, a giant seahorse. Is there anything underwater that looks like a giraffe? That that's what I was going for. Octopus. Well, no. But that then that's eight. That's it looks more like a starfish. Um, a a seahorse looks the most like a giraffe. Okay. Because a horse sort of looks like a giraffe, but squish. But where's the long neck? Seahorse has long limbs. A seahorse has a long neck and a horsey head. Giraffe, sea giraffe, a sea giraffe. Okay. In at number three. But, but is, does that make sense? Of course, it makes sense. The, yeah. a, one, a picture many, paints a thousand words. A picture paints a thousand words, and the picture is in the unconscious mind, and it is up for the therapist and you to find the associations and then unravel those some of those words. And we've talked about how the unconscious does not have language. That's only in consciousness that you're able to have thoughts that are structured according to the language that you speak. In oh, the yeah, unconscious, yeah, yeah. everything is symbolic. There are no words in the unconscious. And because a picture paints a thousand words, one symbol in the unconscious might need a thousand words to describe it in consciousness. And even then, it would only be an interpretation. Well, well it, it depends, I guess, who's... Because, yeah, it would be an interpretation, you're right. I'm pleased with that. I'm going to repeat it. One image represented in consciousness as a symbol might require a thousand words in consciousness to represent it so that you can understand it. And therefore, a dream of a copper pot. The copper pot is the symbol that represents a whole complicated idea, but in order to interpret that in consciousness, you need a thousand words. Yeah. Great. In at number two. You don't want me to do that a third time? No. Are we at number two? I'm on number six, which must be number three, according to your numbering. Yeah, in at number three. Displacement. Shifting something important to something trivial. So, my husband has asymmetrical testicles. That is something that's important to me because I think a part of his... Physical being is wrong. Deformed. Deformed. Disgusting. Disgusting. Shameful. And, and I can't bear to get my mouth anywhere near that. Not that I do that in 1903. What did, I mean, I can't bear to get my silk purse anywhere near his deformed testicles. It's disgusting. But I can't dream about that because that would be confronting the issue. So I dream about a floppy hat. So the important thing, the testicles, become the trivial thing, the hat. Well done. In at number two. Narrative logic retrospective. So 
I think I've used too few words. I'm, I can't exactly remember exactly what this one was. Narrative logic is retrospective. The horse must be Putin's. Therefore, the horse in the dream represents a topless man in Russia or something like that. I think this is... To be honest, I can't remember what numbers what this one was. Narrative logic is retrospective. retrospective. Well, the the story that you tell you tell yourself from the dream is only superimposed after the dream. It's not actually contained there in the dream. It could be that that was the idea. Yeah, let's fucking go with that one. <laughs> and in at number one. Well, unfortunately, this is a repetition of something that we talked about earlier. So things that represent other things. And this in at, in at number one, it was basically sexual organs because Freud loved them. He loved them. Made everything, Freud made everything about sex. And so that he just, in at in number one, he just gives a list of things. Small boxes, ovens, ships, all represent vaginas. Mm-hmm, and then mm-hmm. sausages. But you, you ruined number one because you'd already... Given the game away, hadn't you? Yeah, I forgot that was number one, sorry. Yes, James. But I have something else. What? You got more? Children dreaming of sibling death to get all their (laughs) parents' attention is a very common childhood dream. Except not for me because I'm an only child. I got all the attention I could possibly have wanted. But maybe not all the attention you needed. From other people, no. So oh. that was intolerable when I went out into the real world and found that I wasn't as an adorable darling anymore. No. <laughs> more, more of a odd irritant. So what was that question you asked me? What do I think what is, is most it, interesting? Yeah, what is it? What is it that interests you so much, or scares you so much, or, or you know, what is it about the dream world? Well, the thing that always used to scare me was the idea that there are many interpretations of dreams and it's impossible to accurately use language and logic to explain what that symbol represents from the unconscious. So the former obsessive autiste in me dismissed dream analysis as your word poppycock. Poppycock. Because I thought, well, that's just stupid. It's not proper science. So, I mean, like, for example, let's have a dream, the floppy hat. I mean, that could represent asymmetrical testicles on your husband, but that seems like a ridiculous leap of faith. Surely the floppy hat could also represent the fact that you didn't put your bag of onions away correctly in the fridge, and so next time you open the door, they're going to fall out because they're not balanced properly on the shelf. I mean, what makes you think you know the floppy hat represents the testicles of your husband? Don't be ridiculous. That's not proper science. Let's all be sensible here. Can we all just get a grip? That's how I used to feel about it. Whereas now, Mm. I recognise that I didn't know anything and that no one can possibly know anything. And so we just have to look at this as likely clues of um, someone's particular value hierarchy that is their depiction of the world and what is therefore represented in their unconscious. And so when they talk about the floppy hat... And then when they also talk about their husband's imperfect testicle or asymmetrical testicles, we can deduce that the floppy hat probably represents the testicles. We don't know that for sure, but that is a better interpretation than the fact that the onions fell off the shelf when the woman opened the fridge door because the onions are not of equal value in that person's 
perception of the world as her husband's testicles. Her husband's testicles are there for life. She has made she has made a formal commitment in in vows in church in front of all her family and friends that she will devote herself to that man for the rest of his and her life. That has more value to her than whether or not she successfully put the onions on the shelf in the fridge because next week there'll be new onions. Yes, okay, well, thank you. I think the, the only thing that that leaves for me to say is a comment for the listener. Um, Hang on, why are you not answering your own question? What do you think is interesting about dream analysis? Or scary? Well, from experience, it's useful. It's, it's a way of exploring your emotional landscape. It's a way of um, considering what things might be floating around in the unconscious. You know, you can't ever know. It's always an unknown, but you can get a sense of contentment or a, um, a bit of help to understand something that seemed quite um, upsetting, you know. I think for the listener's benefit, the the significance of dreams was seen as the best form of evidence of the contents of the unconscious psyche by the psychoanalysts at the turn of the century. So Freud and Jung massively um, gave privilege to the contents of dreams in trying to interpret the contents of the unconscious psyche. Nice, nice. Yeah, it was the best window into the unconscious. Yeah, better than diarrhea, which might be a, a, a true displacement of an intolerable idea, but looking at the diarrhea, it's almost impossible to guess what's going on in the psyche, whereas listening to the dream, you get a more interpretable clue. Hmm. Yeah. However, if you're Gillian McKeith, you devote your career to studying people's stools. So wonder, she might disagree. <laughs> and I wonder what that says about her unconscious mind. Um, but yeah, the, you know, the last thing is a little bit of advice for the listener. Um, if your wife has been talking about floppy hats or indeed wearing floppy hats, maybe it's time for you to discuss with her normal anatomy and physiology is for a man show her lots of pictures of all your friends testicles if you happen to have them on your phone and it's a goodbye from me daniel p brown in the private practice podcast studio and i think it's goodbye from the well, it's goodbye from me james hall but i think it's goodbye from the forest of terrible things isn't it i see light coming through the branches i think we've made our way from one end of the forest to the other <laughs> And we are here again in our conscious mind and it's beautiful and healed. Excellent. Well, it's uh, goodbye from us and we'll see you next time. Thank you. Enjoy this moment of catharsis. <laughs> it's a wonderful story.